Well, let me start off with a question here. Do you think that our nation is going in a good direction? This question... <laughs> see some heads shaking out there. Well, this question has been asked of our citizens in various ways, and the numbers aren't really that good. According to a Gallup poll just this last month in March, 71% of the country was dissatisfied with the way things are going. Another poll done by CBS News and the New York Times found that 68% of Americans think that we are on the wrong track. It's easy to see why there's such concern. Politically, we are bitterly divided as a nation. There is very little working together to try to solve our country's problems. The upcoming presidential elections are disheartening for many people because the likely nominees are receiving very unfavorable ratings. And who knows what will actually happen in November. Economically, we are shackled with debt and there is a growing divide between the rich and the poor. Socially, the family unit continues to break down and racial tensions are starting to become more prevalent than ever. Militarily, we face a growing threat of terrorism and many wonder about the threat not really being if it will happen, but when is it going to happen based on what we've seen in Europe. And as a Christian, there are many spiritual concerns that we would have as we look out on the landscape of our country. I could go on and on, but you get my point? So while there is still much to be thankful for in our nation, and we do need to be mindful of that and to express our gratitude for the many blessings we enjoy, every thoughtful citizen should also be concerned about the future of our nation. And that leads, I think, to an important question that everybody sitting here should ask themselves at some point in our lives. Is there a guiding hand, outside guiding hand, to history? For not only my life, but even going beyond my life to our country and other countries. Now when we think about that question, is there some sort of overarching, guiding hand, purpose, meaning behind human history? It sounds like a big philosophical question, but when we break it down, there's only so many viable options to that as an answer. For an atheist, there is no God, so there is no guiding hand, and there is no inherent purpose to all of human life. The best we can try to do is make pretend like there's really meaning. It's not really exciting, is it? Likewise, Hinduism and Buddhism deny a creator God and generally believe that history is cyclical and it just sort of repeats itself over and over and over again. Again, there's no guiding hand or purpose that we have and certainly no personal immortality for the rest of eternity. Now, when we come to Islam, they do affirm a creator God. But here's the catch. Allah is completely removed from His creation. 
He does not intervene in the affairs of the world. Friends, it is only when you open the Bible that you find hope. It is only when you open the Bible that you find hope. Because when we read of the Scriptures, we see a Creator God who not only controls the world, but also interferes and guides the affairs of the nations. Do you realize what a monumentally important truth that is? Do you realize how monumentally important truth that is? That there is indeed a guiding hand to not only our individual lives, but the nations as a whole. And personally, I, I, would, I put more stock in the fact that God is guiding the nations and has power over the nations and will intervene in the nations. I put more stock in that than all of these pessimistic things that we see about our nation. Well, today we begin our series on the Old Testament book of Daniel. And in this wonderful book, I would argue that the overarching theme is God's control of the world. And so while we find this theme in other parts of Scripture, I think it's on fullest display in Daniel. God shows that not only is He sovereign over the small nation of Israel, but He is sovereign over all the nations of the world, even the mightiest of empires, like the Babylonians and the Greeks and the Romans that we find in the book of Daniel. And because God controls these empires, we can have all the more assurance that He also intervenes in the lives of, his, of individual lives for their good and for His glory. So I'm really excited as we begin our time here in the book of Daniel. It has so many great features. Just kind of studying through it this week, just, there's so many wonderful things about Daniel that you could track down and pursue. We're familiar with the incredible stories, right, of deliverance, of reading about the Hebrew men in the fiery furnace and how God delivered them, or Daniel in the lion's den and how he rescued them. We've heard these stories before, and they're so amazing and powerful. They just last forever because they're so wonderful. We also see prophecies about future events that come to pass. It also gives us tremendous wisdom for living godly in an ungodly world. It also predicts, amazingly enough, six or seven hundred years before the time of Jesus, it lays out predictions of a coming Messiah who will have an internal kingdom. So this morning, what I'd like to do is give us an overview of Daniel. I want to set the stage so that when we dive in next week, we'll really be ready to reap the biggest benefit possible. And by the way, I'd like to really encourage you, as we're going through the book of Daniel, to read along with us and to make sure week by week that you're reading ahead so that when you come here on Sunday morning, you're really going to be blessed and soak up the message. And Daniel's kind of nice because usually what we'll do is look at one chapter a week. All right, So next week we'll start with Daniel 1. So go ahead and read Daniel 1 for next week and we'll be really blessed. And read it together with your family. Read it together with your spouse or a friend. Really soak it up together 
in the Lord. So I invite you to turn to Daniel uh, chapter 1. We're not going to look at any specific passages, but just want to point out a few verses here and there along the way. If you're using one of the Bibles, it's found on page 737. So this morning what I hope to do is just want to cover four key points about the book of Daniel. Four key points about the book of Daniel. And the first is the author himself. The author himself. Both Jewish and Christian ancient sources point out that the prophet Daniel, who is mentioned here in this book, is the one who wrote this book. Okay? Now as you open and start reading through, you're going to see that a lot of times Daniel is mentioned in the third person, just describing his life. And other times he is referred to in the first person, meaning himself is writing these things and recording these things. For example, in Daniel 8.1 it says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And you see this sometimes in Scripture where you have a book of the Bible and sometimes it's in the first person, there are certain parts, and sometimes it's in the third person. And so you see that Daniel's own testimony is that he was the one that wrote this book. Moreover, Christ testifies that Daniel the prophet was the author. He says in Matthew 24, 15, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place. So this prophet Daniel was the one who wrote this book. What do we know about this man? Well, we'll say more as the series unfolds. Let me just say a few things about him. Daniel was part of the Jewish exile that came from Jerusalem in about 605 B.C. They came because the Babylonians were conquesting and they took away thousands of young people particularly and brought them back to Babylon. So when he left Jerusalem, he was probably a teenager, okay? And he arrives in Babylon and spends the rest of his life there, probably about 70 or so years. He served in the royal court of the Babylonian kings and then later the Persian kings. And in both administrations, he developed a reputation for being incredibly wise and able. So Daniel's the writer of this book, okay? The next point I want to cover is the date of the book. When was this book actually written? Now, normally, I would not go into a lot of detail about something like this when we're talking about sort of a a new study of a series. But this is really significant. And let me explain why this is the case. Both Jews and Christians have traditionally dated this book that Daniel wrote this in the 6th century B.C. Okay? Now, This has been the unquestioned view until the last 100 or 200 years or so when this traditional view has come under attack by those who are skeptical of this. And So I bring this up because if you attend a university class and it's a class about the Bible or religion and Daniel comes up, you will perhaps hear this line of thinking. So I want to talk about it just for a couple of moments here. All right? So, you say, what's going on here? Why is there this doubt? And why do they put Daniel, and why do they date Daniel to the second century, 400 years later? Well, there's some different things to talk about, but really the chief issue at stake here is the concern or the question of how Daniel can predict things so precisely hundreds of years in advance. Okay? 
And there are those who come along and say that no human being could have this kind of knowledge of things that will take place. And so there must be some sort of other explanation. And so these scholars would come along and say that Daniel did not really write it, that another person wrote this book in the second century, and that they used his name. And so in essence, it's a fictional tale, and it's meant to inspire people who are going through a hard time in persecution that they can trust in God. So this is what you might hear, as I said. So friends, this is a massive issue, isn't it? It's not just some dry academic question. You see, because prophecy is an essential part of Christianity. It's an essential part. And prophecy distinguishes the Bible from so-called other holy books that don't contain this element. And so, for example, when you see in Isaiah... We just quoted this passage, but actually a little bit further up, Isaiah 44, 6 and 7. The Lord says, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let me proclaim it, or let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Listen to this. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. There's no other so-called God that can predict the future, but only the living and true God can predict the future. And so prophecy is a stamp of authenticity on the Bible. And it's important for God's people to know why this is significant. And Daniel is one of like the chief books in the Old Testament that displays the power of prophecy. If Daniel was written in the second century, after these events, it really doesn't belong in the Bible. And we lose a chief piece of evidence for inspiration of Scripture. So, so what, what do we say to this stuff? Well, here's what I would say. To begin with, it all starts with your view of God, doesn't it? If you have a view of God that He created the universe, that He controls all things, and that He actually knows the future. Hello? He knows the future. It's not beyond him to know what's going to take place in the future. Then prophecy is not surprising. And for most of us, perhaps sitting here, think that's I don't really need all this stuff. I know God's in control of the future. But let me try to help you in case your your sons or daughters might be going through this in the schools or the universities they go through. Here are three reasons to affirm in case you run up against a classmate or professor who says, "Well, I don't accept the Bible." The first is this, the testimony of Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish general who was captured by the Romans and became so loyal to the Romans, he was a, they entrusted him to write a faithful history of the Jewish people. Okay, And so Josephus, he's not perfect, but most scholars, historians, regard him as a faithful and reliable guide to the Jewish histories. And Josephus describes an account when Alexander the Great, this is fascinating, he visited the city of Jerusalem. You know, he was conquering everybody, right? And so he goes into Jerusalem in 332 B.C. And Josephus says this took place when the book of Daniel was shown to him in which he had declared that one of the Greeks would destroy the empire of the Persians. He believed himself to be the one indicated. And in his joy, he dismissed the multitude for the time being. So in other words, what Josephus is saying is that look, Alexander the Great came to visit Jerusalem. The Jews went up to him and showed him, look, Daniel predicted that this is actually going to take place long before you were ever born. 
centuries before, and it wowed Alexander the Great. So this took place 150 years before the supposed revised date when the new Daniel come along, came along and rewrote it. So secondly, there are many features of the book of Daniel that reveal light, a knowledge of the 6th century in Babylon. So the question arises, is how would a 2nd century Palestinian Jew know these sort of incidental details? For example, he's familiar with the, how the Babylonians dated things. He's familiar with how the Babylonians loved the number 6 and its multiples, and it appears throughout the book of Daniel. He's familiar with even the fact that they would put plaster on the walls in the palace. And when archaeologists came along later and discovered, whoa, lo and behold, that's exactly what the Babylonians did in their palaces. They would put plaster on the walls, just like Daniel talked about. He mentions how the Persians wouldn't just punish the guilty party, but they would punish the relatives as well. Just kind of small, minute details that appear in Daniel... And the question is, how on earth would a Palestinian man, 400 years later, without modern libraries, without Google for Pete's sake, how would he know these things? Unless he actually lived at the same time and place. And then also, I think this is significant. Daniel was written to inspire its readers in the face of persecution. Right? Here's the rub. If Daniel's clearly false, how is that going to inspire its readers to trust the sovereignty of God in the face of hostility? How would this book have ever gained an audience in the first place if the readers knew that it was a forgery? Friends, it really matters if something is historical or not. Last week, we covered 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, look, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then you are foolish to believe this. But in fact, He has been raised from the dead. So I think overall, not just by knowing the character of God, which is supreme, but also there are strong reasons to believe that Daniel indeed wrote this in the 6th century and that God gave him these prophecies of future events. So the next point I want to cover is the outline. Is there a, we've got 12 chapters here. Is there a structure to this book? Is there a, a layout that we find in Daniel? And it's interesting, Daniel is a simple but intriguing outline. In the first six chapters, we read six stories about Daniel and his Hebrew friends while they're there in Babylon. And, the, and they're just, it's just simple narrative, right? They're telling the stories of what took place just like you would find in the Old Testament books of Genesis and Exodus, or if you go to the New Testament, read the Gospels. It's just stories and narratives, right? But then you go to chapter 7, and you're like, whoa, what's going on here? There is a big change in Daniel. These chapters are quite different and more challenging to understand. In the last, in the last six chapters, there are various visions that God gives to Daniel, and the writing style is what people call apocalyptic, meaning it's characterized by dreams and visions. There's angels, there's symbolic imagery, and there's a whole lot of focus on what's going to happen in the future. So in chapters 1 to 6, we have stories about Daniel. In chapters 7 to 12, we have visions given to Daniel. 
So the two halves of the books are quite different. But I also want you to know that though they're different, there's also a lot of overlap between the books. And as you read this, try to pay attention to this. So, for example, in chapter 2, Daniel's just telling the story about how he interpreted this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. But in the midst of telling this story, he also relates how these four kingdoms will appear one day, which is exactly what we find in chapter 7. So the two sides of the, story, of the book overlap. Now, lastly, I just want to explore one last point, the purpose. Why did Daniel write this book? Well, I think there are two main reasons. First, Daniel exhibits a model, great model, of wise and godly living in the midst of a hostile environment. He lived in a place full of other gods and other belief systems. And there was tremendous pressure to conform to the outside surroundings. Tremendous pressure. We'll see that next week. Daniel shows us how to remain steadfast under trials. I mean severe trials. I mean your life is on the line kind of trials. How to remain steadfast during these trials as well as how to to navigate successfully the landmines of worldliness. Daniel offers tremendous wisdom for you and I and how to live. You know, it's interesting. The book of Daniel, though he was a prophet, in the Hebrew Bible, it is not put in the prophet section. Like, for example, as you open your Bible, it's immediately after Ezekiel. The Hebrew Bible has the exact same books that we have in the Old Testament. But it's interesting. Do you know that they put Daniel in a different section? They put Daniel in the wisdom section, like with Psalms and Proverbs. You say, why do they do that? Because they saw Daniel as this incredible example of wisdom. Because Psalms and Proverbs gives these general principles for wise living. But Daniel shows us how to actually do this. And he does it in a place of a very difficult environment where you are the oppressed religious minority. And now while Daniel was focused on exiles from their physical homeland, I hope your ears are perking up because his audience was not just limited to them. You see, because in the New Testament, it is spoken of of a greater reality of exile. In other words... All true believers are exiles. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says, first to us as sojourners and exiles, we are all waiting for our true homeland. Right? This isn't our permanent home. It isn't the home that we feel most naturally a part of. Though we're called to live here, though we're called to serve, though we're called to be a blessing to the entire world, this isn't our natural home. Hebrews 13, 14 says, For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we live as wise 
bold, and godly exiles while we are here on this earth. Daniel has much to say to all of us. It has much to say to young people who are surrounded by things perhaps in the schools or the challenges of social pressures. It has much to say to them. It has much to say to parents who are trying to raise their children to be modern day Daniels. And it has much to say to all of us who want to be salt and light in the workplaces, in the neighborhoods where God has placed us to not just somehow get through to the end of the finish line and make it to heaven, but God wants to use all of us to be effective, powerful, Daniel-type witnesses in the world. Daniel has much to teach us. And as important as Daniel's wise example is for our lives, we also need to remember that the true hero is not Daniel. It is God. And that leads to the second purpose of the book. God's control of the world. Sometimes Daniel stands out so, and his friends stand out so amazingly well that we forget that it all goes back to God. You see, wise godly living is only going to happen to uh, people whom God has gifted with wisdom and a God who controls all circumstances and a God who responds to our prayers, right? And thankfully we know from Scripture that God does indeed direct the affairs of individuals and of nations. And as I said to start the message, Daniel is, is so incredible because it gives us this really unparalleled sweeping vision of God and His control over the nations, even the mightiest nations like Babylon. God raises up kingdoms and He brings them down. Daniel 2.21 says, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. God is in control of every area of human life and existence. And He is also in control of the angelic realm as well, as Daniel points out. I love Daniel 4.35. It gives us just this sort of comprehensive, wonderful view of God's control of all things. It says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the host of heaven, speaking of the angelic host, and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? What a wonderful passage. The nation of Israel needed to hear this stuff because they had to be wondering, those who have been carried off in exile, God, are you done with us? Are you still in control? They had to be wondering, what about all those promises of a Messiah one day? Are those promises done? Is the line of David broken? Is there any hope for us in the future? As we're going to see from Daniel, God was still in control. And in fact, He had a plan and a timeline to send them back to the land of Israel. And that's great and all. That was wonderful for them. That's really just scratching the surface of what God had in mind. You see, because God also wanted to go beyond that. He had a plan to establish His own kingdom. This divine kingdom He was going to establish in the future was going to be led by a person who appears in Daniel 7, a mysterious figure called the Son of Man. And his kingdom is going to supersede all other kingdoms and last forever. And it's interesting, so that when Jesus comes on the scene in the Gospels, what does Jesus call himself? Does he call himself the Messiah? 
Now, that's not really what he calls himself because he knew that that title had all kinds of baggage and that the Jews meant, oh, that means you're going to kick out the Romans, but that's not what he wanted to do. And so Jesus goes back and he picks a title in Daniel that didn't have all the baggage attached to it, the Son of Man. So if Jesus wanted to call himself this, it really will help us out to know why Daniel chose this title for the Messiah. What does all it mean? So Daniel speaks of this great son of man who's going to come one day and establish a kingdom. But you know what's also amazing? And just shows how the Bible stretches us in so many ways. Daniel also speaks of the fact that this son of man is going to be cut off for his people. Try to put those two things together. He's going to be given this everlasting kingdom, but he's also going to be cut off for his people. Daniel must have been like, okay, I'll write it down. I don't know what it means, but I'll write it down. And of course, Jesus comes along and shows exactly what it means. Fulfills all of it. So much Jesus brings to pass. But it's important that we go back to the foundation. Daniel's showing us his things. And Daniel shows us even more than that. Everybody likes to study the book of Revelation, right? What's going to happen at the end? Well, friends, before you understand Revelation, you need to understand what Daniel's saying. Because Daniel gives a lot of hints and foreshadows of Revelation. There's a big, mysterious beast that shows up in Revelation 13. Comes up out of the sea. What's going on with that thing? Well, let's go back to Daniel 7, where he gives a vision of four beasts that come up out of the sea. And then lastly, just because we were talking about Easter and how resurrection, we should always be talking about it. In Daniel's final chapter, he speaks about one day, resurrection. Don't you love that? All the way back in the Old Testament, they were talking about the hope of the resurrection. And we know, of course, that's what Jesus has brought to pass. So that even if God's people are going through trials, and though he often does bring physical deliverance, there will be times when he will not bring physical deliverance. There's still that overarching hope and promise that one day God will raise his people from the grave and be with him for the rest of eternity. So friends, as we're sitting here today, even when it seems that God is not here, or you're wondering where he is in your life, wondering where he is in our nation, does he really have control over this world? I hope and pray that you'll be encouraged as we walk through the book of Daniel and the bedrock truth that he gives us that God is indeed in control of the world that he has made. Ready to dive into Daniel? All right. Next week, be ready for Daniel 1. Let us pray.